Hear the word of the Lord as he speaks to us again this morning. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. I say this is the word of the Lord. You say thanks be to God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Lord, we do ask for your great blessing now upon us as we seek to attend to your word, hear well what you speak to us, and be transformed by it. Lord, we want to be different. We want to be faithful and holy. According to your word, we pray in your son's name. Amen. Please be seated. If you would, grab your Bibles. Ellen mentioned that the Bibles are all around here. Please grab a hold of them. And if you would, flip to Colossians. Colossians is about, oh, five sixth way through your Bible, right towards the back end or so, you'll find the book of Colossians. You should be able to track that down. We are looking in chapter 1, beginning about uh, halfway through the chapter in verse 21, looking at verses 21 through 23. That's Colossians 1, verse 21 through 23. Now, we're actually jumping into the middle of an argument, and before we get too far down that path, we've got to make sure that you're caught up for this. For those of you who came last week and actually remembered last week, thank you, I appreciate that, but for most of us, uh, we uh, might know Paul's argument at this point in the game. Paul's making this uh, argument about the supremacy of Jesus Christ, about this vast uh, picture of the magnitude and uh, amazing characteristics of Jesus Christ. Uh, opening verses there from 15 through 20 that we looked at last week, and again, if you're familiar with this passage, you will know this. It paints this, this wonderful, marvelous picture of the cosmic character of Jesus Christ. What is Christ? Who is Christ, and how is he the author of all things? How is he the sustainer of all things? How he is the perfecter of all things? He's the redeemer of all things, everything about Jesus Christ. You get this massive picture of Jesus Christ, exactly what Paul is trying to portray for you, in such a way, perhaps, that for many of us, we think, wow, we we pale in insignificance. We, We fade into the background here because of this great glory about Jesus Christ is being portrayed for us. I thought that it would probably take me a while before we got to know each other a little bit more before I confess to this, but uh, here you go. I am a huge Disney fan. I love everything Disney, cartoons, movies, the big floppy ears. I love every, yes, all of the princesses. I love all of the princesses. I'm a big Disney fan, especially uh, the Disney World. Uh, my parents, when we were, I was maybe eight or ten years old, I don't know, but uh, we went to Disneyland and we were walking around and I was just gobsmacked. I was just, everything was just amazing to me. I was overcome by everything that was going on around there. And at one point I got distracted and was watching something and, you know, I'm just overcome with joy and excitement about this kind of thing. And I look around and my parents, oh, there they are in a distance. So I go running up to them and grab my mother's hand and start chattering on about everything that I've seen until I hear this a strange voice say, Little boy, I'm not your mother. You know, I look up, ah, and it's not my mom. And I was just completely overcome by everything and all the wonder and beauty that was around me in such a way that I completely lost track of anything dealing with me because I was so taken by Disney World. That's almost the temptation 
that we get laid to in those opening verses of Paul's letter, verses 15 through 20, where he is describing, look, this is the glory and the majesty of Jesus Christ. And we can almost lose Paul's point, which is not to talk about this theoretical, distant, wonderful, theological picture of Jesus Christ, that he is all of these things, that he's the sustainer, that he is the author of everything, that he's the creator of all things. Yes, Paul wants you to have this massive, huge picture of Christ. And last week, I challenged you, is it possibly true that your view of God is simply too small, that your view of Jesus Christ simply doesn't incorporate, doesn't encapsulate everything in which Jesus Christ is. But you can get lost in that. Or you can think, well, this is just a theoretical discussion of this big, huge, massive authority figure in heaven, etc., etc. Paul doesn't want you to do that, and you can tell that because right after he has this wonderful discussion about Jesus Christ, where over and over again in those verses, 15 through 20, Paul bangs out, he is, he is, he is. He's telling us who Jesus Christ is in such a way that I think we're all stunned and overcome by who Christ is. Then immediately after that, he shifts in verse 21 and says, and you who were once alienated and hostile and doing evil deeds. He takes this wonderful, marvelous picture of Jesus Christ. And he says, don't forget that everything about Christ here has direct and immediate relevance to you. Jesus Christ is is, is supreme. He's above all things. He is beyond all things. And he is exactly and specifically for you. There's always this constant temptation that we will get theologically wrapped up in who God is and forget that God is exactly all of those things, but He is eminently personal for every individual in this room. When Paul writes this word, he writes this within the back of verses we're about to look at. He writes within the context of saying, look at how marvelous, look at how overwhelming is our, is our Lord. And realize that He is for you as an individual. Well, how does He view us? Paul immediately moves on and then begins to talk about us. In verse 21, he says, And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Now, when I read that, I sit and I think, Boy, those Colossians must have been horrid people alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Maybe Colossae was, you know, some prison cell someplace or something where only the wicked of wicked end up showing up. Listen to that description. Alienate. Now, alienated, we have a bad view of alienated. Alienated is a popular phrase that we use today, and it often means somebody who is socially uh, on the outside of things, or, you know, I feel alienated from you, and that usually has to do a whole lot more with our own hearts and our own thoughts and stuff like that. That's not the picture here. Alienated is a term that describes the separation that we have from God. Alienated 
means to be separated, to be excluded from God. Not just that you feel separated from God. Not just that you think there might be some kind of separation from God. You know, oh, I feel alienated from my friends. That means I haven't talked to them in ten minutes. You know, nothing like that. This is, we're alienated from God. We are separated from Him, cut off from Him, and that is an intentional action. This is not something that just happens. When Paul looks at the Colossians, Colossian people, he says, listen, you, do you remember that you were alienated? That is, that you were intentionally set apart so that you could be separate from God. Uh, I've got to tell you, I know very few non-Christians who think of themselves that way. I know very few Christians who think that they were that way. We simply don't have that picture of ourselves. So Paul's either talking to a much more wicked kind of people, or he's talking about us. And we just don't think like that. They were alienated from God. They were hostile in their minds. Here's a test. Go up to any one of your family members who are not believers or not faithfully pursuing the Lord or some of your coworkers, or a friend or neighbor or somebody and ask them, say, do you feel like you're hostile towards God or you're a friend of God? And I, I almost guarantee you that you are going to get the majority of responses that are going to be, well, neither. I'm kind of in the middle. God and I are kind of working it out. I'm not really God's friend, and he's not really, but, you know, we're kind of in the middle ground there somewhere. Not, in a, not hostile to God, and not friendly with God. I'm just kind of in the middle there like that. One thing that the Scripture absolutely rejects across the board is that there is any sense of anyone ever being apathetic towards God. There is no picture, no instrument, no element of creation that is ever apathetic towards God. Scripture, this is a binary issue in, in Scripture. You are either a friend of God or you are an enemy of God. And that's exactly what Paul writes here when he says that you're hostile in your minds. You're hostile to God. You are enemies towards Him. You are alienated, you were hostile in your minds, and you're doing evil deeds. Now, I don't know about you, but I am used to saying and commenting on people, look, I realize that I'm a sinful person. Uh, I, I realize it. You will very quickly realize it. I am a sinful human being. There are, there, sin happens. But if somebody comes up to me and says, hey, Henry, are you evil? I sit there and think, ooh, no. People from Cleveland are evil. No, I, you know, evil. No, I'm not evil. I'm, I'm sinful maybe, but not evil. Listen, evil is a description of one's connection or relationship with the goodness of God. And you are either doing things that are good in God's eyes, which are only those who are good in God's eyes can do, or you are doing evil. Once again, the Scripture portrays only two options for us. We are either friends of God or we're enemies of God. We are either doing good things for God 
or we are doing that which is evil in his sight. There's none of this middle ground where we want so desperately to be because we want to believe that we're in this middle soppy area where God will eventually say, well, I'm not really wild about this person, but okay, I'll take them along because they're not really terrible. Now, we might want to think that all we want, but there's not one shred of biblical evidence that that's who God is, that that's how God thinks about it. God thinks about it absolutely crystal clearly that every person in this room, no matter when it is that God worked in your hearts, and by God's grace it was when you were a young kid long before you can remember. I hope that's your story. Or when you were 22, uh, which is my story, or whenever. Whenever it is that moment when God worked in your life, before that, this description of verse 21 is exactly you. You can't see it any other way. And part of the reason why we have such this tiny view of Christ is because we have such a tiny view of what He has done. He has helped me eh, a little bit. And so therefore, He's only a little bit great. But Paul starts here by saying, do you realize how great He is? He is that great and marvelous. You know why? Because that's what you needed. Because you weren't just apathetic towards your Lord. You weren't just on your way, making your way towards God. You were hostile to Him. You were enemies with the Lord. But that's, of course, not what Paul... Paul's interest here isn't to beat us up. When pastors preach about sin and everything, the the popular uh, media model is, oh, you know, everybody's a Bible thumper and, you know, hell and damnation and all that kind of stuff. I don't know any preacher that I know of that, that... Boy, I can't wait to tell everybody what sinners they are. You know? Here's the reason why we do it. We do it because we're so enamored by how wonderful Jesus Christ is. I want you to see how wonderful Jesus Christ is. And the part of the way to see that is by realizing what He has done for you. That He has taken you as somebody who is sinful and hostile to God. And that He has called you as His own child. There is nothing more exciting, more wonderful than that. That gives you the big picture of Jesus Christ because you begin to see who you are and what you are really like. Take a look then. It moves on. He just doesn't talk about how terrible you are. You who were once. Notice the the past tense here. Uh, Paul's not talking about who you... Okay, wait a second. If you're a believer in this room... If you are somebody that has claimed the name of Jesus Christ, if you are leaned upon Him, leaning upon Him for your salvation, then then this description is perfect for you. You who were once. This is past tense. This is past tense for you. Now, if, if your dependence and devotion and commitment to Jesus Christ is not as Paul envisions here, then that might still be your state. Even if you're here in this room, every how many people in church are described by this state, verse 21? It's just enormous. But for those who claim the name of Jesus Christ, hear the past tense on this. Because this is not, I don't want any believer to walk out of this room sitting there thinking, oh, I'm, I'm hostile to God, or I continue to do evil deeds. No, you don't. And you know why you don't? 
still do evil deeds? You know why you're not still hostile to God? Listen to verse 20, uh, 22. He has now, this is Christ, so you who were once alienated and hostile in that mind, He, Christ, has now reconciled in His body of flesh by His death. Okay, now, wow. By His body in His, in His, in His, whoo, in his body of flesh by his death. That's, that's just Paul long-winded for at the cross. You have been reconciled. But brothers and sisters, you haven't been reconciled because your heart, in your heart, because your heart has changed. You haven't been reconciled because your mind has changed. You haven't been reconciled. You've been reconciled at the cross. Jesus' death and resurrection. But notice who's the actor in this verse. This is not you who were once evil and hostile, now you have reconciled yourself to God. That's not what it says. You who were hostile in your minds, He has reconciled you. Jesus Christ is the one who is acting here. Yes, Paul starts this passage by saying, who are you? Realize who you are. You're sinful in His sight. You are broken, separated from Him in His sight. But guess what He has done? He has reconciled you. Now, funny thing about reconciliation. Reconciliation is a two-way street. And if it doesn't work two ways, it doesn't work at all. And so, often I think what we have in mind here, and if I had a visual image here or somebody, uh, Craig, come here. Uh, okay. Uh, yeah, yeah, seriously, come on. Okay, can Craig come up? Is everybody all right with that? Okay, come here. Okay, so Craig's this evil guy facing that way, going that way, and he's doing all this evil things and stuff like that. And we have this picture that God is over here saying, Craig, over here, Craig, over here, Craig, over here. And, and he's waiting until finally God turns around and, oh, Craig, and we hug. Okay, stop, stop. Okay, now we have that kind of picture of what we're doing, but that's not the biblical model. The biblical model functions just the opposite way around. That Craig is indeed going that way because he is hostile to God. And guess what? God is hostile to Craig. God's going this way. God, God is, Craig's moving that direction. God's moving this direction. Until, thanks Craig, until the blood of Jesus Christ... It is the blood, it is through Christ's death. Somebody remind me at 10.35, not 10.45, not to do that to anybody. I'll bring them up. Um, uh, it, is, it is through the blood of Jesus Christ that reconciles us to God, but it also reconciles God to us. The reconciliation of Jesus Christ is a reconciliation that changes, turns our hearts towards the Father, but it also removes from us the very reason why God is hostile to us. And so God then turns with great joy towards us because of the reconciling work of Jesus Christ. The, the reconcile, what Christ has done, yes, He has done wondrous things in our hearts to change our hearts, to transform us. But He has also transformed and changed our standing before God so that God can eagerly embrace us. Because notice the purpose of this. In the end of verse 22, there, He has reconciled us by His death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before Him. He, Christ, 
has reconciled us so that Christ might present us before him. I'm going to assume the him there is the Father. That Christ's goal in doing all of this work on our behalf is so that he might present us. All right, now I sit here and think of, uh, you know, the old Hallmark movies or whatever, where somebody gets presented before the king and the king is standing there and then, you know, hey, Sir Henry from, uh, you know, Conneaut Lake here to pay his dues or whatever. And, and here's the thing. The, the presenter, Jesus, is standing there by the Father's ear saying, oh, you're going to love this one. Here comes one who's holy and who is blameless and who is above reproach in your sight. Henry Knapp. Wow. You know, oh, and here's somebody else. Here's Lois. This one you're going to love too. You know why? Because she's holy. And she's blameless. And she's above reproach. Holy. To be set apart by God for His service. Blameless. To be without blame as we stand before God. Can you imagine standing before the Lord of the universe and feeling no guilt? No shame whatsoever. And above reproach. Not just do I know it. Not just does God know it. But everyone else knows it too. I am above reproach in God's eyes. So you get this picture of somebody who's alienated, hostile in mind, and doing evil deeds. And they are transformed into somebody who is holy, blameless, and above reproach before our God. Paul then wraps this up in verse 23. If indeed you continue, so all these things are going to happen, if indeed you continue in your faith. Now, that immediately sounds like a conditional phrase that God's going to do his part as long as we do all of our part. I don't think that fits the context. It certainly doesn't fit the context of the rest of the scripture. It's not that God's twiddling his fingers waiting for us to do our part so he can then send Jesus Christ to reconcile us. Jesus Christ has reconciled us on the cross. That was the immediate verse right before that. This is a statement of how, how do we know that? How do I show that? How can I demonstrate to everybody that I am destined to be presented before God blameless, without reproach, and holy in God's sight. How do I do that? Well, Paul says, to continue in the faith. And then he describes what that faith is. To continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope. There's three characteristics there. Stable, steadfast, and not shifting from the hope. And here's the thing, that's, that, that you might think that stable gives the idea of being anchored. You know, like, uh, I'm digging in here kind of a thing. Uh, the whole content of the, of the word, the whole concept of the word, is that you cannot be stable unless the foundation is stable. You cannot be stable if you're standing on the sand. Period. So to be stable focuses not upon how firmly you dig into the, stand, the sand, but what you're standing on. To continue in your faith being stable is to continue in your faith being anchored on the foundation of Jesus Christ. 
to be steadfast. I was um, shoveling snow. Is anybody else shoveling? I was shoveling snow the past couple days, and hopefully all of you will get a chance to come by our house at some point, um, and there's a little bit of a dip in the driveway, and that makes a nice little ice sheen, which means that when you're standing out there in the wrong shoes, that you just whoop, fly on it and go all over the place. And so to be steadfast is not just to be anchored well, but it's to be anchored well with the right stuff, with the right shoes, so that you're anchored there in place. And not shifting means that no matter what happens around me, the circumstances that blow upon me, the troubles and difficulties that I have, by golly, I'm, anchor, I'm steadfast and I'm stable. Not because of me, but because of who I'm standing on. Paul has this marvelous picture of Jesus Christ, and he wants desperately, and we're going to, the whole series, the incomparable Christ, we want you at the end of Colossians to be overcome by the incomparable Christ, how marvelous and how wonderful he is. But realize this, he's not there to be wonderful and marvelous like Disney World, where we can just gawk at it and be lost in it. He is wonderful and marvelous for you. Because no matter how wicked you might realize you are, no matter how blameworthy you might rightly be, because of Christ's death on the cross, you are in his mind to be presented to the Father as somebody who is holy, blameless, and above reproach. There's got to be people in this room that question every once in a while what's going on in their life spiritually. Am I being faithful? What does it mean to be a Christian? Am I doing the things that I need to do? Please realize this. Verse 22. He has reconciled you. He has turned toward you. And he has shown you his love and grace. Let's pray together. Lord in heaven, we do ask for your great mercy upon uh, the understanding here that uh, we trust is ours by the virtue of your Spirit working in us. Your Spirit has given us this word, and now we pray that your Spirit would speak powerfully here into our hearts as we leave this place, taken always by your love and your grace that you work in and through us. We ask for your great mercy in your Son's name. Amen.